Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. My plan for this week's episode was to start working through some of our alternate suspects. But as I began to write, it occurred to me that we're putting the cart before the horse. My level of passion for this case is increasing daily, and my instinct is just to go full steam ahead. I am determined to solve Catalina's murder and help to bring her killers to justice, whether that means Jennifer's two accomplices or alternate suspects. Even if Jennifer is guilty, there are still two killers that have never paid for their crime. But as much as I am itching to move ahead, so much so that I already began to write a script that we're not going to use this week, we need to stick to the process. We need to finish fully investigating the original investigation before we can move on to alternate suspects. So today, I'm going to rein things in a bit and put the focus on the person responsible for Jennifer's arrest the lead investigator on the case. This is Season 10, Episode 12, Detective Allen, Part 1. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Waymond Oliver Allen Jr. was the lead detective charged with investigating Catalina's murder. He testified at length in Jennifer's trial, and today we're going to go through that testimony. We'll start with a direct examination conducted by Prosecutor D. Glazer. Direct begins with the usual reciting of credentials. At the time of the trial, Allen had been with the Houston Police Department for almost 23 years, and he had been assigned to the Homicide Division for 12 years. 
He said that he's particularly assigned to a, quote, murder squad, which is a squad within the division that investigates aggravated assaults, kidnappings, and murders. Then, after this quick background check, Glazer gets right into the day of the murder. She starts by asking what time he received the call to Green Arbor. He replies that he received the assignment at about 10.30 a.m., and he arrived at around 11. Allen explains that, as is typical, and in this case in particular, homicide detectives are sent to a scene in pairs. One will handle the crime scene investigation, and the other will canvas and look for witnesses to interview. In this case, Allen took the crime scene documentation aspect, working with the crime scene investigator, Verbitsky. His partner, Detective Swainson, handled the canvassing and interviewing. Next, Glazer asked Allen to briefly explain his significant findings at the scene. I'll read his response to you directly out of the transcript. Quote, Well, initially on my arrival, what I noted was that there was, appeared to be forced entry into this woman's apartment. The patio door, glass patio door, was partially opened. I'd say maybe two, five inches or so. That in itself wouldn't indicate forced entry. But there's the screen covering. That door was damaged and laying on the patio. From the outside, from the sidewalk looking in, I could see a house slipper laying on the concrete patio outside the doorway. I then entered the apartment with the first officer on the scene out there. I believe it was Officer Picard, a uniformed officer, and began a preliminary examination of the scene itself. And what I mean there, of course, obviously, the complainant's body was like in a foyer just inside the front door. There was quite a bit of blood on the carpet around the body. There were some fragments of a pot laying in the living room. The scene seemed to be contained to the living room foyer area and the kitchen dining room area. This was a one-bedroom apartment. It was a one-bedroom, kitchen, or living room with a small breakfast area and a bathroom. Initially, just observing the scene prior to anything being moved, I wanted to have the crime scene officer, which is Verbitsky in this case, photograph it, video it, and take measurements before we move anything. And normally what happens during that time period that this is going on, it gives you a chance to look at the scene a little more in detail without moving anything. The only real surprise here is that Alan says that the sliding glass door was only open two to five inches. It's not a huge deal, but definitely has me wondering who closed it. We know for a fact that Truesdale walked through the door, so at some point it was all the way open. It's also open all the way in the crime scene photos that Verbitsky testified were taken before anything was touched or moved. I don't know that this really means anything important. It's just a discrepancy. And while we're on the topic of the patio door, I want to run off on a quick aside about Eva for just a moment. I've said this before in passing, but Alan's testimony has reminded me of something regarding Eva's statement. In Eva's written statement, she says, quote, I saw that the patio door was all the way opened and the screen for the patio door was ripped away and hanging from the frame. And she's talking about what she saw before she ran to get help with the manager's office. This occurred while she was hearing the screaming from inside. But when considering a theory where Jennifer is guilty and Eva is innocent, we have no choice but to also consider the fact that in order for Eva to be in a position to see that the patio door was open, she had to get all the way off the stairs and walk around to the front of the patio. There's a storage closet in the way blocking the view of the door from the stairs. The point is this. If Eva could see that the door was open, then she could also see directly into the apartment. 
There's no getting around that. If someone could explain to me how she had a clear view directly into the apartment and didn't see Jennifer or the two other men inside, I'm all ears. In Jennifer's confession, when Ernest fakes the old lady voice, he's over by Catalina's body. Tim is standing in the living room, and Jennifer, quote, walked around to the edge of the counter and saw Ernest stab the woman several times. I then heard a woman's voice outside say, are you okay? I recognized the voice as Eva. Jennifer would have been standing in a direct, clear line of sight to where Eva was standing, looking into the open door. It's just food for thought. Back to the testimony. Allen says that he was processing the scene from 11 a.m. until 5 or 6 p.m. For reference, the crime scene investigator Verbitsky testified that he finished the investigation and cleared the scene after only two hours. So I'm a little confused how Allen spent four more hours on the scene than the crime scene investigator did. But anyway, then he goes on to explain how he determined which items were missing from the apartment. First was the wallet. He says that there were two purses on the dining table and he wasn't able to find an ID. He doesn't actually say that he looked in the purses, but the implication is there. We assume that he did. He also found evidence, I'm assuming he's talking about statements, that Catalina had credit card accounts but didn't find any credit cards. Based on all of that, he determined that her wallet must be missing. And then came the car keys. He says that he was able to determine that Catalina owned a car, but he didn't find any keys. I checked in her nephew Juan's testimony, since we've been asking about this for the last few weeks, and he does say that the keys were not found and that he moved Catalina's car with a spare set that he kept for the car. Also in Juan's testimony, he states that he went into the apartment with Detective Allen to determine if any knives were missing. He says that he was familiar with an inexpensive knife set that Catalina had bought, and the largest knife, what he called a butcher knife, was missing from the drawer. Actually, he doesn't say drawer. He says that Detective Allen pointed him to, quote, the door that was opened in the kitchen. But here's the thing. I'm confused about all this knife talk. Let me read you Detective Allen's testimony about the knife, and then I'll explain to you why I'm confused. From the transcript. There was a knife in the drawer that was pushed into the facing of the cabinet, if you will. In other words, it kept the drawer from closing. On closer examination, we found what looked like some blood drops, very fine mist of blood drops across the utensils, and a large plastic wrapper there in the drawer. And it looked like a smudge of blood on the side, if you will, of the drawer, like it had been pulled open and tried to be closed in a very rapid fashion, and the knife stuck in the face and didn't close. So here's the confusing part. There isn't a knife set in the drawer from what I can see in the crime scene photos. It's a silverware drawer with a brown plastic insert, the same type that you probably have in your own silverware drawer. It separates spoons from forks and whatnot. From what you can see in the photos, the insert is full of dull silverware, different types of spoons, forks, butter knives, etc. We have a clear view of all but one slot in the insert, which is covered by the clear plastic, and there are no sharp knives visible. That's not to say there aren't any sharp knives in there, but it doesn't look like there is or even is room for a full set of knives. There is what looks to be about a four-inch open space to the left of the insert tray, and you can see maybe the bottom of one black handle, 
that maybe possibly could be a knife, but I really don't think, I don't see where it could be a full knife set in that drawer. Which makes me wonder if the knife set that Juan was looking at behind the, quote, door wasn't in that drawer at all, but was somewhere else in the kitchen. I mean, I have no doubt that Juan believes that the butcher knife is missing from a set. And maybe it is. Who knows? Maybe it broke. Or maybe it's in the drying tray in the sink. He says in his testimony that Alan only showed him an open door and asked him if any knives were missing from the set. Doesn't say that he ever looked in the sink or anywhere else in the kitchen. But one thing that we do know is that Catalina was not killed with a large butcher knife. She was killed with a pretty small knife. My guess would be probably a pocket knife or maybe a small steak knife. So the butcher knife missing is actually irrelevant to the crime scene. But it's very important in understanding how Jennifer's confession came to be. Two weeks ago, I theorized that Jennifer's statement in her confession that she moved the plastic from the drawer and Tim grabbed the large butcher knife from under it was information that came from Detective Allen and not from her. Since we know that's not what actually happened, I hypothesized that Allen must have assumed a butcher knife was used because of the size of the wounds on Catalina's chest. But now we know that the day before he interrogated Jennifer, he was told by Juan that the large butcher knife was missing. Surprise, surprise, that tidbit of incorrect information lands itself front and center in the confession. And that's not the only problem with the silverware drawer. I'm not even going to get into the paint that they thought was blood. We've covered that enough. But Alan says that he noticed the drawer was open, and he saw that it was stuck open because a knife stuck into the face of the cabinet when someone tried to close it. When I first looked at the crime scene photos, I thought Alan was just wrong about this. In the photos, it looks like a wooden spoon is actually what's keeping the drawer open. But upon closer inspection, and I'll put these photos up on our website for today's episode, I realize that he was right. There was a knife holding the drawer open. It was a large butcher knife, to be specific. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alan's testimony continues in chronological order with his activities on the evening of the murder. He says that he and Detective Swainson returned to the complex that evening, hoping to track down a few witnesses. He was looking for Youngster, KD, Housen, Red Rock, and Doris Gibson. He says that he found and interviewed Doris, and he, quote, came across Jennifer. 
and then he moves on to the next day, Wednesday the 30th, the day of Jennifer's confession. Alan drove to Green Arbor to interview Pam Wiley. While he was there, Swainson met him and informed Alan that he had located Youngster and KD at their home. The two detectives then drove to their house together. From the house, Alan left with Youngster in his car and drove him straight to the station for an interview. And Swainson put KD in his car and drove back to Green Arbor to look for Jennifer. Alan testifies that he spoke briefly with Youngster and then assigned Sergeant Boyd to take his written statement. Then Swainson arrived at the station with Jennifer and KD. Swainson took KD into the interview room to take his statement, and Alan began his seven-hour interview with Jennifer. Glazer asked Alan what he first said to Jennifer. He says that he started out by telling her about inconsistencies in her statements. Quote, Well, I told Miss Jeffley that she couldn't have been in front of the apartment like she said. Based on the information on the date, I didn't believe that was probable. At this point, Glacier started getting into the details of Jennifer's statements, both written and oral. Coyne puts up a hell of a fight here. He's objecting to all of the statements coming in based on hearsay. The jury is then dismissed for a lengthy bench conference, where the judge decides to allow the testimony about the statements to come in. He does, however, agree to allow Coyne to put a running objection on the record. Basically, Coyne is saying that he's going to object every single time Allen tries to testify about something Jennifer said. The running objection means that those objections are noted in the record and they're overruled. The purpose is so that Coyne doesn't have to stand up and object every two minutes, like a jack-in-the-box, as he said at the bench. Then after all that is settled, the jury steps back in and the testimony continues. Alan starts to walk the jury through his day with Jennifer. He says that when he confronted her with inconsistencies in her statement, she maintained that her written statement from the day before was accurate and truthful. He then summarizes her first statement, but he does make a slight shift. He says in his testimony that Jennifer had said that she received the page from Craig Peters at about 8.30. He moved the time up by 15 minutes. Her actual statement says that the page came at 8.45. But then the rest of his summary seems to accurately relay what Jennifer signed in her first statement. Then Glacier focuses in on Jennifer's claim of jumping over the fence onto the patio. And I think this is a good spot for us to do the same for a moment. Let's quickly look at the evolution of Jennifer's statements about jumping the fence. In her first statement, Jen says that she followed Truesdale into the apartment through the patio. She says that in her first oral statement, her first written statement, and she says it to Alan in another oral statement the night that she gave her first statement. And the next day in her second oral statement, according to Alan, she says that she actually jumped the fence to check on Catalina before Pam Wiley and Truesdale arrived. One thing that has always jumped out at me is the fact that in Eva's first statement, she says that when she returned from the office, that Jennifer immediately told her that she had jumped the fence to check on Catalina while she was at the office. Even if Eva is lying about parts of her statement, innocuous details like this that happen to line up with other statements and evidence, meaning Jennifer's prints on the glass door, always get my attention. Why say that Jennifer told her that she had jumped the fence if Jennifer hadn't told her that? 
What's the utility in that? And what are the odds that Eva just made up that whole detail out of whole cloth? And then Jennifer happens to say the same thing in her statements. And her fingerprints happen to be on the patio to boot. Detective Allen goes on to testify that he told Jennifer that he didn't believe her because other statements contradicted her jumping the fence behind Truesdale. He says that when he confronted her with the inconsistency, she, quote, changed her story slightly and said that she actually went over the fence to check on Catalina while Eva was at the office getting help, which, as I just mentioned, does actually match what Eva said. He goes on to testify that Jennifer at some point told him that she could see the body from the outside. He's relaying her unrecorded statement as though she was saying that she could see the body from outside the patio on the sidewalk. But he has it mixed in with her version of events where she says that she jumped the fence to check on Catalina. So I don't know if he's talking about two different statements. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like they're the same statement. So let me just give you my hypothesis or one of my hypotheses here. As I'm trying to piece together what actually happened, it seems to me like a likely scenario was that after knocking on the door when June Sage saw Jen and her interaction with Red Rock, after Red Rock leaves, Jen then jumps the fence to check inside. I think it's possible that she got to the sliding glass doorway And with her left hand on the glass, she peeked inside far enough to see the bottom half of Catalina's body. She gets spooked and jumps back over the fence, and then Eva shows up with Pam Wiley. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm not even saying that's a theory. I'm just trying to piece together what could have happened as more and more information comes in. As the conversation continues on about jumping the fence... I can't quite understand why Alan insists that Jennifer couldn't have jumped the fence prior to Eva's return. He testifies that he told Jen that that simply wasn't true and that it didn't make any sense. But it does make sense. In fact, he had Eva's statement, which he held up as the gold standard of truth throughout this case, that supported this detail. But for some reason, he insisted that it wasn't true, didn't make sense, And he told Jennifer exactly that. He then says that he asked Jen if she was protecting someone or if she was afraid to tell the truth. This is when Jennifer asked to go to the bathroom to wash her face and promised to tell the truth when she returned. When she returns, this time she tells a story about Eva and a man named Frank planning to rough Catalina up due to her complaining to the manager. What's interesting here in the testimony is that Alan says, quote, I knew that that was ridiculous because there were other witnesses that were present and they didn't see that happen. And he's talking about KD and Youngster. But here's the thing. At this point in the interview with Jennifer, KD and Youngster were in other rooms making their statements. He didn't know what their statements said because they weren't written yet. Had he seen their statements, he would know that it's not ridiculous at all. That doesn't mean that it's true, but it's certainly not ridiculous. And most definitely not more ridiculous than these two skilled car thieves picking up a 15-year-old to be their lookout. In both of Katie and Youngster's statements, these two guys that just met Eva the night before, they both say in their statements that Eva had been complained on for the traffic in and out of her apartment. So we know that was a conversation. And in both of their statements, Eva opened the door to the apartment before they exited the bedroom. 
It is absolutely plausible that Eva met with a guy and roughed up Catalina and then returned to the apartment. As I've said before, it is just as likely that the boys heard Eva coming back into the apartment as it is that they heard her opening the door to go out. But Alan tells Jennifer, and now the jury, that this theory is ridiculous and impossible because of KD and Youngster's statements, which in actuality don't make it ridiculous or impossible. Alan goes on to describe Jennifer's account of entering the apartment through the front door, checking Catalina's pulse, and putting her purse onto the dining room chair. And then as we move forward here, we start to get a really good look at how Jennifer's confession came to be. So at this point, Jennifer is still maintaining her innocence. But listen to how Alan is starting to lead her and guide her into a narrative. So Jen says that Eva told her to grab the purse, and she did so, putting it on the dining chair. Then Alan asks her if she put anything into the purse. She says that she put a book in it. And he asked if it was a checkbook. She says that it could have been. He then asks her if she was in the kitchen. And she says, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you that. This is all out of Alan's testimony, by the way. She says that she went into the kitchen drawer to get a pen because Eva told her that she needed to write things down for the police. And Alan adds, quote, I think she said she saw some knives in there in the drawer when she was getting the pen. Alan leads Jennifer down the path of his theory of the case, which was that Catalina was stabbed with her own large butcher knife from her kitchen. If we go outside of this particular case, we've had several false confession experts on the show over the years. Jim Clementi, Jim Trainum, Laura Richards, and Jim's brother Tim. And all of them describe the process of leading a juvenile into a false confession. The confession usually comes after the fourth hour. What happens is that after hours of interrogation, fatigue starts to set in along with frustration. And there's also an incredible amount of gaslighting going on. When a child, a juvenile, tries to tell the truth to a police officer, and they are continually told that their truth is impossible, it's ridiculous, it doesn't make sense, it messes with their heads. And then they reach a point where they become like Schrodinger's cat. They start picking up on what behaviors from them get them rewards from the detective. They start to learn throughout the interrogation how to please the detective. If I don't say what he obviously wants me to say, he continues to torture me with more and more questioning. This is never going to end unless I just agree with the officer. And then they start to pick up on clues and cues from the detective. Like when he says, did you ever go into the kitchen? That means he wants me to say that I went into the kitchen. And when I give him what he wants, he's nice to me. He says things like, okay, now that makes more sense. And that's good. We're just about done here. Now, I'm not saying that Alan was using these exact words, but he was certainly using these tactics. And unfortunately, he chose not to record any of these interviews, so we only have his word about what he said. He describes 10 minutes of conversation that occurred over several hours. We have no way of knowing the things that he's not telling us. And we do know that Detective Allen has no problem lying. We know for a fact that after Jennifer was in custody and was in the process of creating the official written statement that would secure her arrest, Allen told Jennifer's mother 
that they were almost done and she would be home shortly. And you might say, well, sure, he lied, but so did Jennifer. But I'm sorry, I cannot wrap my head around the folks that go on and on about how Jennifer lies, and then they turn around and defend Detective Allen and say that I shouldn't be so hard on him. Personally, I tend to hold an officer of the law up to a slightly higher standard than your average citizen. He lied, and he broke the law in doing so. So you'll have to forgive me if I don't take his account of how this day transpired for gospel. Back to the testimony. Alan continues on to say that Jennifer told him that she had moved the piece of plastic in the drawer to get to the pen. He then tells her that that didn't make sense either. She wouldn't rummage through a drawer to find a pen when a lady is laying dead just a few feet away. So what he did here is he guided her into the kitchen. He got her to say that she was in the kitchen, and then he told her he didn't believe her reason for being in the kitchen. And he's right. What Jennifer is saying is ridiculous. But that's because she knows she's supposed to be in the kitchen at that drawer doing something, but she doesn't know what. So she comes up with a ridiculous story. And this is part of the step-by-step approach of the read technique. You first get the suspect to admit that they were at a particular location. Then, once you've done that, you can start to push them into admitting why they were there. This, of course, is assuming that they're actually guilty. The problem is that the read technique was written under the assumption that the person you're trying to get to admit something is actually guilty. The idea behind the tactic is that you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. Meaning, once Jennifer agrees to being in the kitchen, she's stuck with that. When Alan starts pushing about not believing her reason to be in there and starts suggesting a different reason, like getting the murder weapon, she can't then say, actually, I was never in the kitchen. She's stuck. She's stuck in the kitchen now, which again is a very useful tactic if you're dealing with a guilty person. When you're dealing with an innocent person, you end up with a ridiculous confession that doesn't make any sense. The read technique is a carefully crafted mindfuck. It actually says right in the textbook that the process is psychological warfare. Alan continues on to say that after he got Jennifer to admit that this latest version of her story was a lie, he says, quote, I purchased a soft drink for her and myself and some candy because she admitted again that that wasn't true but that she was going to tell me the truth. So this process for Jennifer went something like this. When you don't tell me what I want to hear, I berate you, I accuse you of lying, I tell you everything you're saying is ridiculous and doesn't make sense. But if you tell me what I want to hear, I buy you candy. Like I said, Schrodinger's cat. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ellen continues on with his testimony. He says that after he gives Jennifer the candy and the soda, he asks her if she's going to tell the truth now, and she replies, quote, You were right. 
I was afraid for my family. Then she begins telling him the story about Ernest and Tim approaching her two days before the murder about stealing Catalina's car. He starts going into detail about the story Jennifer was telling, and when he gets to the part about the timing of the morning of the murder, Glazer interrupts him and asks if in this version she was admitting to being involved in the murder. She's leading Alan into testifying that he properly took her to the magistrate for warnings before he typed out the confession. And he does just that. He says that she gave him the guilty version of her story at around 6 p.m., which is four and a half hours into her interrogation, just like the Read Technique textbook predicts. And then Alan explains the process of taking her for her warnings, returning to the station, and picking up Burger King along the way. He says that she's now in custody, but that he never put handcuffs on her. Now, just think for a minute about the state of mind that Jennifer is in at this point. On paper, she is now in custody and is about to agree to a statement that's going to send her to prison for the rest of her life. But in reality, she's not cuffed. By Alan's own words, we can see that he's being very friendly with her. When they arrive at the station, he doesn't take her back into the small windowless interview room, but instead has her sitting comfortably in the open office now, eating a sandwich. When she talks to her mom, Jennifer says that she's fine, she's just helping them with a statement, and she's eating her dinner. And then she hears Detective Allen tell her mom that she's going to be home soon. You cannot tell me that Jennifer in any way understood the gravity of the situation that she was in. She was actually in a position where she had learned over the course of the day that Detective Allen would be really nice to her as long as she goes along with the story that he wants her to tell. Alan then explains the process of typing out Jennifer's confession. She's sitting right next to him where she can see what he's typing on his computer. He says it's, quote, done in a narrative question-answer form. Now, this part is not by the book. Even according to the read technique, once you get to the point of the suspect being willing to give a statement of confession, you're supposed to let them talk. It's actually the safety check that's supposed to be built in. If someone is truly guilty and they've decided to confess, then they should be able to narrate exactly how the crime occurred. This part isn't supposed to be an interview or an interrogation. It's supposed to be, now tell me what happened, and let them go. Countries that are far more advanced in protecting against false confessions than the U.S. have checklists that look for exactly this. They want to know. Does the confession actually fit with the evidence at the crime scene? And is the suspect able to provide a flowing chronological narrative of what happened? And in this case, neither is true. It took Alan two hours of questions and answers to land on the finished product that we have in the file today that doesn't match any of the evidence. After typing out the statement, Alan asked Jennifer to look at it and see if she wanted to change anything. She, of course, did not. He then took her back to the magistrate. At this point, it's been over seven hours since she started her interview. The magistrate reviewed her statement with her and then gave her warnings again and then witnessed her signing it. And then at this point in the trial, Detective Allen reads Jennifer's confession to the jury. You're all familiar with the statement and it's on our website if you want to review it. So we're going to move on just past it. Alan continues his testimony after the reading by describing a trip that he made with Jennifer about two months later. On December 19th, Detective Allen met with Jennifer at the Juvenile Detention Center, 
Her attorney at that time, Mike Monk, contacted him and said that Jennifer could take Allen to the home of her supposed accomplice, Ernest Watson. This is months after Allen's investigation of Ernest and Tim had already led him to determine that the two men didn't exist. The case files actually closed at this point. But nonetheless, Allen puts Jennifer in the car with her attorney and they go driving around looking for Ernest. He says that Jennifer was unable to locate the house. His testimony was that Jennifer seemed, quote, disinterested in the entire procedure and was just going through the motions. She directed him to two different neighborhoods, and then when they got to the area, she wasn't even looking out the window or pointing anything out. To kind of test Jennifer, Alan drove her by a house that he believed Jennifer had been to before that had no connection to Ernest or Tim, and she did say that she recognized that house. The feeling you get from the testimony is that Alan believes that Jennifer just picked a neighborhood that she had been to before and had them drive around. And my guess about how all of this even transpired to begin with was that, as I've said before, Jennifer's attorney didn't believe that she was innocent, and he wanted her to cut a deal. If I had to guess, I'd say that her attorney told her, you need to take the detective and show him where this man lives. Jennifer agreed to do it, even though. She couldn't show them where the man lived because the man doesn't exist. Next up was the wallet. and We all know that story intimately at this point. Alan testified that it was dusted for prints, but nothing usable was found. There's a little talk about the forensic testing that was done, which we've already covered. And then Glazer asks about the knife. The large butcher knife is a linchpin of the state's case. Jennifer's confession, where she described the murder weapon, was very specific. And if she got it wrong, it's difficult to see how this could be anything but a false confession. From the transcript, Glazer. Officer, you said you've been in the homicide for close to 12 years, is that correct? Allen. Yes, ma'am. Glazer. And based on your expertise, tell the members of the jury whether a knife, and specifically a butcher knife, can be used as a deadly weapon. Allen. Absolutely as a deadly weapon. Glazer. And in your opinion, based upon all the evidence that you're aware of in this particular case, was the knife that was used in killing Miss Palomino used as a deadly weapon? Allen. Yes, it was. Glazer. Pass the witness. And with that, direct examination concluded. And what we see here, again, very similar to the language we saw during the testimony of the medical examiner, was some sleight of hands with the word choices to make it seem to the jury as though Catalina had been killed with a large butcher knife. But once again, when you read what was actually said and testified to, she only asked if a butcher knife could be used as a deadly weapon, and then she follows up by asking if the knife, not a large butcher knife, but if the knife that was used in killing Miss Palomino was used as a deadly weapon. So, as I said, this was the end of direct examination, and I think it's also a good logical stopping point for the end of this episode. We still have 60 more pages of testimony to get through, and we'll continue on with that next week. When we return... Jennifer's attorney steps up to the plate for cross-examination. 
and hopefully we get more information about any investigation or any other leads were followed other than Jennifer Jeffley. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.